Well, this is the last message today on the disciples' prayer. We've been in it for, I think, 11 weeks, trying to squeeze out every little tidbit of it. And hopefully we've accomplished that. There's so much more in there, but we're going to move on. But we're going to look at, toward the end uh, of the disciples' prayer, the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6. So you can turn over there, and I'll just read it for you. Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. In this manner, therefore, pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, this is our text for today, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Uh, we've been looking at this prayer for several weeks and we've noticed that the ingredients of this prayer, is, it's not just a prayer that needs to be recited verbatim. Um, it's really God's way, Jesus' way of showing us, here's how you're to pray. This is a model for you to follow. And uh, see, back in Jesus' time, there was a, in their culture, they were having a real hard time with the issues of prayer and giving and fasting, these three things that he covers here. But he really divided these, when speaking of prayer, into two groups in his culture, in his time. He divided them for us into a group known as the Pharisees, and we've become, become very familiar with them in the previous messages. And he's also uh, divided, the other group is the group of the pagans. So you have the Pharisees praying one way, the pagans praying another, and Jesus walks onto the scene and says, both of these are wrong. I don't know where you came up with this stuff, but this is totally wrong. And you notice in verse 5, um, the praying of the Pharisees was characterized by what? By hypocrisy, right? He called them hypocrites. And they would stand on the corner praying in all their robes and their religious garb so everybody could see them. And then people would look at them and say, oh, look at how religious they are. Um, it's kind of like sometimes we put all this stuff all over our cars dealing with our faith, which is fine. That's good witness. But be a good witness if you got that stuff on your car. You know, don't be driving around like a crazy man. You got, yeah, Jesus loves you on the back. Well, I hope so because, you know, uh, it's just important that we, we stand up for Christ, but it's also important that we don't do it in a hypocritical fashion as the uh, uh, Pharisees did. And then, you know, they would parade around and they'd have this silly phoniness that they kind of put off. And uh, they, were, they were very hypocritical in their prayers. And the pagans, on the other hand, we, we learned earlier on in, in uh, Matthew that they prayed basically very mechanically. They thought the more they prayed, well, somehow God would hear them. And so they would, they would just pray and pray and pray and pray and repeat things, vain repetitious prayers, as even some religions today still do that. They, you know, I, I was... Uh, raised in a church where you, you go to confession and then this guy behind the screen says, okay, well, you know, uh, go do this. And you go, go out and you pray uh, five Hail Marys and Hail Marys and you, then you, you pray um, five Our Fathers or whatever and somehow that's supposed to uh, take away your sin. Um, that's vain repetition. I remember praying through those prayers so fast before I go to bed at night, I didn't even know what I was praying half the time. And that's how the pagans prayed in their culture. And so Jesus was looking at these both things. He says, don't pray hypocritically like the pagans do, but don't pray mechanically. Don't just start babbling off stuff that makes no sense. And we see some of that even today in the charismatic movement with, you know, some of these tongues and stuff that people say they're speaking in. And you ask them, well, what are you saying? They don't know. And nobody else seems to know because there's no interpretation. And it's just babbling, babble. 
and somehow that's supposed to make them more spiritual than the rest of us that don't speak in tongues. Well, I'm sorry, but the Word of God doesn't teach it that way. And we have to be bold enough to say that at times. But the Pharisees were basically, they were clued, uh, they were kind of focused in on their own self. They were very selfish people. And the, the, the pagans, they were just, the way they approached their prayer was not selfish, but it was just mindless. They just thought, hey, I'm just going to repeat this stuff, and sooner or later God has to, our God has to answer, because they weren't praying to the true God, obviously. And so the sin of the Pharisees' prayer was hypocrisy. The sin of the pagans', pagans prayer was ritualism, was just pure ritualism. And sometimes we can fall into that, even in our own Christian lives, and we have to guard ourselves against us, against that. We're kind of bent that way. Um, and so we want to stay away from those things. We're never to pray that way. And Jesus here gives us a model. He says, pray in this fashion, in this, in this way, pray. I mean, how many times have you muttered the, 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 the Lord's Prayer out just to say it? <laughs> um, or maybe the Psalm 23 or whatever, you know, your favorite part of Scripture is. You just kind of memorize it and you can just blah, 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 babble it off real quick without even thinking about it. You know, God doesn't want us to do that. Um, God is focused on our heart. Where is our heart when we're praying these words? Where is our heart when we're giving thanks for our food? Where is our, it's not the words that come out of your mouth. Yesterday we were at a barbecue, and, and uh, uh, unbeknownst to me, I mean, right before we ate, somebody came up and said, oh, would you mind praying? And immediately I thought, oh, you know, we got Christians, we got non-Christians here. It's kind of a mixed thing here. Um, I wasn't expecting to do that. And so, you know, rather than go on and on and on, you know, I, I simply prayed for the food, thank God for the food, and, you know, and everybody seemed to be happy. But, you know, that wouldn't have been the place just to stand up and, and become some great orator on prayer and, and start, you know, witnessing to people through my prayer. That wouldn't have been the place. That would have turned people off because people were hungry, including me. And the food was looking just way too good. So we had to give thanks and, and dig in. Praise God for the food. So, I mean, sometimes we have to be careful how we come across to people. But anything... If your prayers are doing anything other than exalting God, if they're exalting yourself or exalting someone else, that's not glorifying to God. And the Word of God clearly shows that to us. That's what Jesus is saying here. And in this prayer, there's, there's basically several uh, petitions that deal with His greatness and His goodness and, and all these things. And uh, John Stott said this, When we come to God in prayer, we should not come hypocritically like the play actor's seeking the applause of men, nor do we come mechanically like the pagan babblers whose mind is not in their mutterings, but thoughtfully, humbly, and trustfully, like little children we come to our Father. And that is the essence of the prayer. That's what John Stott had to say about the disciples' prayer. And basically that's it. The truth of any prayer is how it relates to God. That's what our prayers should be made up of. Our prayers are not to inform everybody else in the prayer group what prayer needs we have. Sometimes that's what we do, thinking that somehow God, like we're talking to everybody else and not to God. God knows perfectly what we're going to say. He knows the needs on our heart before we even utter it. And so sometimes we need to kind of refocus and say, am I talking to everybody else in our prayer group? Because if that's the case, don't pray. Just say, you know, I need to have some prayer requests and I'd like to share them with you. But don't go into, you know, our Heavenly Father, you know, you know that my great-uncle George was stricken down this path, and you give this commercial in your prayer. That's not really honoring to Christ. And we all do it on occasion. I'm not, you know, and we don't want to be critical in our prayer time, but we also have to pray intelligently. We have to pray biblically. And so Jesus is saying, don't pray like the hypocrites. Don't pray like the pagans. 
pray in a way where it will exalt God. And the only way to do that is to have a proper understanding of who God is. If you don't have a proper understanding of who God is, how are you ever going to pray in a biblical prayer? See, the more we know about God, the more we know about His character, the more we know about His attributes, the more we know about what He's done for us, it helps our prayer life. You know, there's, there's kind of a thought going around in a lot of churches today that, you know, you can't teach theology because theology is boring. And theology is just, you know, that's 70s stuff, 80s stuff. Get over it. Well, that's a lie from the pit of hell because if you don't have any theology to base back up what you're believing, what do you have? You have Zippo, nothing. It's very important that we have a foundation of theology. That's what theology is. It's, it's truths about God. And if we're going to come to a place called a church and call ourselves Christians and then say, well, we don't want to have to deal with theological issues. It's kind of crazy. So we have to have a proper foundation upon which to bear, build this foundation, especially for prayer. And that's what this does. He gives six petitions here after he opens up with our, our Father in heaven. And he says, first of all, God's name be hallowed. That's his desire. God's kingdom come. That's his will being done. And he already promised, he says there, to give us our daily bread. He's already granted us, we learned the last couple of weeks, in Christ absolute and total and complete forgiveness. There's nothing more to forgive. And he's already promised us to lead us and to guide us and direct us away from evil and the path of righteousness. See, that's what this prayer is. It's not so much a prayer saying, oh, I need this. I need a loaf of bread. No, it's an, aff- it's an aff- affirming prayer saying, God, thank you for providing my daily needs. Thank you for allowing Christ to die on the cross for all my sins and forgiving my sins. Thank you for leading me not into temptation. We're going to look at that today. So when we're praying, it's very important when we pray, what we are doing is we're, we're really claiming what is already promised to us. And so when we have a proper understanding of the promises in God's word, what he's already given to us, can you see where that would help you in your prayer life? You don't have to go to God and beg him for something. God, give me more love. Please, just give me more love. He's up there going, man, I've shed the love of Christ abroad in your heart. What more? There's no more love to give. You need to realize, we need to realize who we are in Christ. I think that's the major downfall of so many Christians is they don't realize who they are in Christ. They need to read through the book of Ephesians and find out their identity in Christ. So then when Satan comes and whispers things in their ears, they don't just roll over and go, oh, no, I'm defeated again. They can realize that they can stand in Christ by his power. And so we're not coming to God begging him for all these things. See, it's one thing to pray, hallowed be thy name. But see, if there's impurities in our life, if there's unholiness in our life, if there's no virtues in our life, how is God's name going to be hallowed through my life? It's not going to happen. But if we meet these conditions, if our life is pure as far as we know it, then his name is hallowed. His name is set apart. His kingdom will be made manifest through my life. If we submit to him in obedience, his will will be done in our life. 
if we're living as we ought in a Christ-honoring way, then our daily needs will be met. If we've come to our brothers and sisters as Christ has forgiven us and we've forgiven them as we learned last week, then he will continue to wash us of our daily sins. And just a note on that, just to clear up any confusion from last week's message. Remember, this prayer is written to Christians. Okay, and a couple of people asked me this, and I just want to clarify what I was saying last week when we talked about and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Remember, what that's saying is, as we have been forgiven, let us forgive. Okay, that's, that's really the essence of what they're saying there. And it's written to Christians. You know, I was no way implying that, oh, before you can come to Christ, you have to go around and, and forgive everybody that, you've, that ever has done anything against you. Because you know what? As a non-believer, you can't. You don't have the ability to forgive biblically if you don't have Christ. And so this is written to believers. And so the condition, the prerequisite of our continual cleansing, which allows that joy to be in our Christian life, as we get up every day, the world kind of soils us and we're going throughout the world. And and the Bible says if if we uh, sin, then we're supposed to come to God and confess our sin. He is just and faithful, faithful and just to cleanse us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so as we do that, as a Christian, we have no rights when it comes to, well, I know Christ has forgiven me and now I'm a Christian, but you know what? I'm going to hold a grudge against this person. Can't do it. Something's wrong. You're not going to have joy in your life. You're just going to be miserable until you repent of that sin. And that's what it is. And you may be saying, well, you don't know what that brother or sister did. I don't care. It doesn't matter. When you look at the example of Christ, and that's the example we're supposed to follow. See, we need to kind of refocus and say, boy, God, and I'm not saying it's easy. None of us in our own ability can forgive some of the things that have been done against us in our lives, in our own flesh. We can't do it. We can't find it within ourselves to forgive those people for whatever they did. But that's why we ask Christ to do it through us. That's why we turn to the cross and say, God, you know what? I don't even like this person. But the Bible says that I'm not supposed to hold grudges. I'm not supposed to hold something against somebody. So, God, somehow you're going to have to allow this to happen in my life because I do want to live a life that's pleasing to you. And as long as I hold this grudge, as long as I hold on to this thing, whatever it is, it's not going to be pleasing to you. And you're going to, it's going to suck the joy right out of my Christian life. And so we need to be guarded against those things. And so we have conditions that are met, but when those conditions are met, God works in and through us through prayer. See, and this prayer is really a claim on what is already guaranteed to us. It's not something that we're begging God about. Now, we've looked at, at God's paternity, his priority, his program, the purpose, the provision, the pardon. Now we're going to look at his protection. Today we're going to look at God's protection. And that's what it says there in verse 13. It says, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. See, we move from a physical need, our daily bread, to a spiritual need, our forgiveness. And now you're kind of moving on to another, you might call it another spiritual need or a moral need. We need God's protection. God takes care of us through our daily bread. That's physical sustenance. God's take care of our sin through the pardoning, through Christ. That's forgiveness. 
And now God takes care of this. He kind of sets this moral standard out there by guiding our life away from sin. Verse 12, you think of it this way, deals with past sins. We've been forgiven. It's a point in time. Christ's blood covered our sins. The Bible says that he removed them as far as the east is from the west. You go by the biggest measuring reel you can down at Home Depot and you go out and say, I'm going to measure how far it is from the east is from the west. Have fun. You're not going to be able to do it. The Bible says that he buried them in the depths of the sea. I like what one commentator says. And then he put up a no fishing sign. (laughs) You know, it's so important that we understand who we are in Christ, that we have been forgiven. Verse 12 deals with that. Well, verse 13 really deals with our future sins. It, It deals with sins that we're still committing, that we're still going to commit. Now, they're forgiven, but they still have to be dealt with. See, if you're a true Christian... If you're a true believer, and this is, is very important to understand, and what I mean by that is, is you've not only you know, made a commitment to Christ and you've, you've come to the cross and you've acknowledged your need for salvation, you've repented of your sins, and you see the most important thing is you see Christ changing you. As a youth pastor, I'd take kids to camp all the time and they'd walk an aisle, they'd raise a hand and be all emotional and cry and get everything out. Friday night and Saturday we'd head back to the home and you know usually by Wednesday or Friday of the next week they're right back to the same game they were playing with God before. Nothing's changed. It was just an emotional event in their life because the music was right and their friends were going and, and it was just kind of herd mentality thing. That doesn't save anybody's soul. What saves someone's soul is when they truly sense God doing a work in their life and you see it. It's evidenced. So if you're a true Christian, you're going to see something being done in your, in your life. And you know what? I believe you're going to be just as concerned about your future sins as you are about your past sins. What do I mean by that? Well, so many times we look back at the cross and, boy, thank you for the cross. All the sins that I've committed <clears throat> have been forgiven. And I've met believers who look down in front of them and say, well, since they've been forgiven, so-called believers, I guess I can go do this or I can go do that. I know God's Word tells me not to, but, you know, the pastor said, and God's Word says that all my sins are forgiven, so why not? And basically, they, they trod under their feet the grace of God. And when somebody comes along and says, boy, I'm so glad my sins are forgiven, everything's done, I'm just going to go and do whatever I want. You know, the Bible does say, after all, you know, where sin abounds, grace abounds more. And obedience goes right out the door. And God's blessing on their life goes right out the door. And they wonder why either they're miserable, if they are a believer, or they don't have the joy they see everybody else has because they're not a believer. But somehow they've been tricked into believing that they are. That's, that's a, a very important, legitimate claim to salvation. Has God changed you? Do you look at sin differently? 
See, before we were saved, how did we look to sin? Something inviting. Something, boy, this is going to be fun. Let's go do this, whatever. God wasn't even in our thought, how it offended God. That wasn't even in our thinking. But then God comes, convicts our heart. He changes us, transforms us, the Bible says. And all of a sudden, we have a new outlook. We have a new mind. We have the Word of God. We have the Spirit convicting us. And then when we look down and we see sin, what should be our attitude toward that sin? Should we run to it like a candy shop? No. The Bible says if we're a true believer, we we should run away from it. We should avoid it at all cost. Because to be a true believer is to have a changed attitude toward sin. It's kind of like looking back and saying, God, thank you for forgiving me of all my sins, past, present, and you know what? I'm sorry, but I know that there's probably going to be some that I'm going to commit, and you know, thank you for that too, but you know, not that I want to, because we're not perfect. That's where God's grace comes in. And so we should be just as concerned about sins in the future as we have been about the ones in the past. We don't want to get involved in that again. We've been there, done that. We know that it dishonors God. We know that it dishonors His Word. It dishonors His Son. It dishonors everything about Christ. Why would we go down that road again? Why would we look forward to going down that road again? Sin is very enticing. You have to be very, very careful. But that's why we need God's deliverance daily. That's why we need to be filled with His Spirit daily. If we just rely on ourselves, forget it. And that's really the cry of verse 13. See, uh, verse 13, you know, there's a lot of kind of misunderstanding here about this verse. I mean, when you read this verse, you say, well, basically it's saying God keep us out of trouble, right? That's what it's saying. No, it's just saying so much more than that. And if you look at it carefully, you might start to ponder and start to ask yourselves some theological questions. One question that I thought of right away It says there, lead us not into temptation. Okay, they're talking to God. God leading us into temptation. You mean we have to ask God not to do that? In other words, does God lead us into temptation? And we have to go to God and say, please don't lead us into temptation. Because that's what he's going to do if we don't ask him. Can a holy, righteous, pure, undefiled, blameless, unblemished, virtuous God possibly lead anybody into temptation? Or even worse, it says, and ask Him to deliver us from evil? If we don't ask Him that, is is, is He going to put us into evil? Is that what it's saying? Lead us not into temptation. Would God do that? Some people look back, well, you know, the word temptation means trial, and, and basically the prayer says, lead us not into trials. Lead us not into trials? You think that's what it says? We have a problem because if you turn over to the book of James... It says, count it all joy, right? When you encounter all sorts of cage-rattling trials in your life. 
Because the trying of your faith brings patience, and patience has a perfect work. So that if you take it as a temptation, you've got a problem because God isn't going to tempt us. And if you take it as a trial, we still got a problem. James 1.13 says, Let no man says when he is tempted, he is tempted by who? By God. Don't say that. For God can neither tempt nor be tempted. He doesn't tempt any man, the Scripture says. So how can the, the, the Word of God, how can the Lord say here, don't tempt us, when the Bible says He never will anyway? Or don't lead us into a trial when we're denying another verse that says, well, we're supposed to count it all joy when we fall into these trials. See the problem? <laughs> See, it's, a, it's a kind of a, a dicey situation here. It's not just, oh, God, you know, keep us out of trouble. No matter how you deal with that word, and there's men a lot brighter than I've ever dreamed to be that argue about this all the time. But no matter how you deal with it, there's a problem here. No matter whether you say it means temptation or whether you mean it, it says trial. You still have an issue. Christendom said this. He's an early church father. And he says, This particular petition is the most natural appeal of human weakness as it faces danger. In other words, what he's saying is it's, it's not so cognitive, one commentator said. It's not so rational as it is emotional. That's what this cry is. It's a cry of the heart. And it may not line up theologically. But it's an utterance of the heart that hates sin and despises it. And it's a cry out to God saying, please, help us in this area of our lives. See, when we look at the idea of trials in our lives, when we look at what are trials for, you know, trials strengthen our Christian character. Trials strengthen who we are. We grow through trials. They have a perfecting work in our lives. So trials aren't all bad. But we also realize that God doesn't tempt us. Because the Word of God says that. God never tempts anyone to do any wrong at all. He would never do that. He would be totally out of his character, out of his nature. And so you look at that and you say, well, these two things, I mean, we're praying for this, that God would not do this. It's kind of like a paradox. I mean, there's a lot of different paradoxes in Scripture, two things that are true that seem to oppose each other. In Matthew 5, you remember the Sermon on the Mount, the Bible says there that we should rejoice when we're persecuted. Remember when we covered that? Well, if you go a little further in Matthew chapter 10, verse 23, it says flee persecution. What do you mean? Okay, so I'm supposed to rejoice when I'm persecuted, but then over here it's telling me to flee persecution? That's a paradox. What are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to stand there and face persecution are we supposed to, and rejoice, or are we supposed to run? And there's a sense in which we run from persecution, but when it catches us, when it catches up to us, we just have to count it joy in the midst of it. 
There's a sense in which we resist the trial. I don't know of anybody that wakes up in the morning and says, God, please, you know, I've, I've been dry of trials lately. Please send another big trial my way. I can't wait. I mean, that would be a sick person just to wake up and want God to inflict us, inflict them with trials. But we also realize that in the midst of trials, we learn things. Nobody seeks a trial. But when we, you know, we we don't want to run from a trial, but we have to face it. But on the other hand, we don't go out looking for trials. God wants to do a work in us through those trials. It's an exercise on our spiritual muscle side. He wants to kind of work our muscles and make us stronger through that trial. But we don't have to go out and look for them. Usually they just find us. You remember when... Uh, Christ said, Father, let this cup pass from me. Remember that when he prayed that? See, there was something in his humanness that didn't want to go to Calvary. He didn't want to be mocked and spit upon and have a crown of thorns crushed upon his head and be nailed to a cross. In his humanness, his flesh repelled that idea as it would any sane person. No one likes to be persecuted. Nobody likes to be tortured. That would be a sick person. And so in his humanness, he says, let this cup pass from me. And yet, through that trial, through that hardship, it was through that that he redeemed the world, those who would come to faith in him. See, and there's something in our hearts that says, Lord, if you can spare me this trial, do it. But you know what? If, if I have to go into that trial, deliver me from the evil potential that might be there. See, it's a prayer based on distrust of yourself. It's a prayer of humility. You know, I think as Christians, a lot of times we grow proud in our own faith. And sometimes... Most times, we probably think more ought about ourselves than we ought to. We think more about ourselves than we ought to. You know, I don't know about you, but I don't trust myself. I don't trust myself. Um, I really don't. I know I'm a sinner. I know my, my, my nature is bent towards sinning every day. And I've gone through the pain of having to confess sins to to whoever in my life that I've committed those sins against, namely the Lord, but others. And so when you look at yourself, what do you see? You see somebody who's a spiritual... I don't. I'm kind of afraid of myself. I'm, I'm, I'm fearful that you know one wrong move could cost me major embarrassment. One wrong move could cost me a disgrace of the Lord in ministry, this church. I mean, you can just go down the, the road. That's why in my office I have pictures of my grandkids all around my computer. It's kind of like they're watching me. You know, I mean, that's how I think in my weird mind. But it just keeps things in check. And see, it's so important. You know, don't trust yourself. Um, I have to watch what I look at. I have to watch what I hear. I have to watch what I say. Sometimes I don't do a good job in that area, but you know what? I still have to kind of put a watch over it. 
have to be careful where I go, what I look at. I have to be careful what even convenience stores you go in because you go into certain convenience stores in rather close proximity even to our church just to buy a water. And you're standing there behind the thing and you look behind the checker and you see all sorts of things that are not honoring to the Lord. And you have to make a decision. Am I going to come back here and allow those images to be put into my mind or am I going to make a commitment to stay away from this place? Don't trust yourself. See, when we get in a trying situation, when we get in a trial, that's really the beginning point where we need to stop and say, okay, you know what, I'm entering this trial, I need to run to God. I can't do this on my own. It's like in the military when they would set out sentries to kind of away from the, the main camp. And when they would see an army coming, that sentry wouldn't just, all right, I'm here to fight. No. What would he do? He would run back to the main camp and tell everybody else, and then they'd go out all together and fight the battle. See, so many times as Christians, we're this lone sentry outside the city walls, and we see the enemy coming, and we try to take him on, you know, one-on-one. Well, it may look like a one-on-one battle, but beloved, believe me, it's not. He's got a host of demons that is ready to take you down in a flash. And we need to realize that presence of evil in the world that surrounds us. And when we do that, we begin to realize, wow, I need to be dependent on God each and every day. So it's a prayer based on self-distrust. Lord, please don't lead me into this tempting area. Don't let me fail you in this area. I mean, if you look at nature itself just around us, you know, you look at the intellectual world, we live in a, in a fallen world that's very clear. What you got to do is walk through a magazine stand and look. You look at all the emotional problems people have today. And then you look at the spiritual world and how crazy that is. Man is out of har- harmony with God and, and there's just a, a big problem there. And the enemy takes advantage of it at every turn. So let's look at this phrase, lead us not into temptation. Would God deliberately lead us into temptation? Look over James 1. James chapter 1. kind of already mentioned it, but I just want us to look at it. James chapter 1, verse 13. says, let no man, no one say... When he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. God does not tempt anybody. Now, let me say this. God may allow Satan to bring certain trials into your life, like he did Job's life. But Satan does the tempting, not God. God may allow it, 1 Corinthians 5, 5, for some believer in the church to be turned over to the hands of Satan for the destruction of the flesh, as the scripture says. But it's Satan who inflicts that. It's not God. God just allows it. God may discipline in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20. It says, turning one over to Satan to learn not to blaspheme. Very serious stuff. God may permit Jesus Christ to feel the onslaughts of hell against him. But it wasn't God who was bringing those onslaughts. 
See, sometimes the will of God allows certain things. And he has to allow it because if you believe what Scripture says, God is in control of everything. He's sovereign. He's in control of everything. God has to allow everything there is or it couldn't be. That's how powerful God is. And there are times when God allows us certain trials into our lives. And there are times when God even allows Satan to have his way in our lives because we've been disobedient or maybe we've, we've been unfaithful. See, there are times, I think, when we step out of the protection God affords us in Christ. And God says, you know what, if you stay in this ring, if you stay in this, this area here, I will protect you. If you step over the line and you do something that's dishonoring to me, no promises there. Satan will have his way with you. There are times, like in Job's case, when God allows Satan to do some things to prove how righteous we are. When's the last time you heard something like that? But God is not the tempter. Evil never touches God. James 1.14 says, Every man is tempted not by God, look at this, what it says, but when he is drawn away by his what? His own lust and enticed. His own lust and enticed. See, I think when he's drawn away of his own lust is that internal drawing of the flesh. Our flesh is bent toward that. And enticed basically adds the, the princess that, 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 that Satan is this force that pulls it from the external. We have the flesh and we have Satan to deal with on a daily basis. Men sin because they're tempted. And they're tempted internally by their lust, and they're tempted externally by the enticement of this world and Satan all around us. And when lust conceives, it what? Brings forth sin. And when sin has its finished work, it brings forth death. death. But look at what it says. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Don't make a mistake here. It says, when sin comes and lust comes and temptation comes, remember this. What's he tell us to remember there? He says, every good and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights in whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Interesting. The truth here that we have to realize is that every gift that God ever gives is a good and perfect gift. And that will never vary. Never. It's important to understand that. You say, well, people say, well, God allows evil. He does allow it. That's his own choice. He's God. And we're going to have to wait until we get to eternity to see if there's an answer to all that. But God does not do evil, and God does not tempt anyone to do evil. Everything that proceeds from God, the Bible says, is good and it's perfect. So all of a sudden you have this kind of tension in your mind. God allows certain things, but they are not the expression of his heart, his mind, or his will, or his character, but he allows them. 
If you want to know what God feels about temptation, if you look over to Matthew chapter 26, Matthew 26, verse 41, Jesus made it very clear to his disciples. He says, watch and pray lest you what? Enter into temptation. In other words, he wanted them to avoid it. Well, how does Satan tempt us? 1 John 2, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh. And what's the third one? Pride of life, right? These are of the world. They're not of the Father. That's what it says. Those things don't proceed from the Father, but they proceed from the world, the flesh and the devil. That's what the Word of God says. So now the total is within the framework of God's allowance. He allows those things. He's given us a choice. He didn't make us, create us as robots. We're not robots as believers. We can make a choice. We can leave here today and choose to sin. God doesn't make us sin. And so God does not tempt us to do evil. But we're tempted by our own flesh. We're tempted by Satan. Tempted by circumstances around us. But God's desire is that we watch and we pray not to enter into temptation. See, and I guess to wrap it up right here on this one point, what I'm saying is when you sin, do not blame God. Don't you dare blame God. That's your own choice. That's not God's will for your life. Lust comes from basically uh, the, the Latin, which means from the inside and or from the outside. So it's talking about the flesh. It's talking about Satan, this world. But it's definitely lust does not come from God. So we have this back in Matthew, lead us not into temptation. And you see that word temptation, and it's very important that you understand what the word means. It's really a neutral word. It's not a bad word. It just depends on how the original Greek intends it to be used in the context. It doesn't mean bad. It doesn't mean good. It simply means a test or a trial. That's all the word means. Nothing more than that. Now, the English word temptation means kind of a seduction to evil. That's our understanding of temptation. But the original language, it was just kind of a neutral word. It meant a test or a trial. But the word is not, the word temptation in our thinking is not always the right translation of the original Greek. Sometimes it could be translated as a word test. Sometimes it's translated prove. Sometimes it's translated trial. Sometimes it's translated temptation. But it really means a test. It's a neutral word. So let's read it this way. Lead us not into trials. Lead us not into testings. See, anytime there's a legitimate test or a legitimate trial in your life, whatever it is, I don't care if, even if it's a school test, you have the possibility to what? Either pass that test or what? Fail it, right? 
You either pass the test or you fail it. That's basically how it works. Unless you're in the California school system and then everybody passes. But anyway, that's a side note. I don't know why I said that. <laughs> so you have this possibility to pass or to fail. To succeed or not succeed in the test. Now listen to this. When God brings a trial, when God brings a trial into your life, there's always the possibility that that trial, that testing, can be turned into a temptation if we don't deal with it properly. Think back in in Genesis 50 when uh, Joseph, regarding his brother, and they sold him into Egypt. And what he said was, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for what? For good. All right? Every struggle, every trial of life brings alongside with it a test. And that test is there to exercise our spiritual muscle, to strengthen us, to help us grow in our maturity in Christ. But in the midst of that test, if we don't perceive it through the Holy Spirit and through the eyes of God, and we don't commit it to Him, and we don't ask Him for strength to deal with it, to stand in his strength, what happens? That trial, Satan grabs a hold of that trial and he turns it into a temptation. And all of a sudden, the trial that we're in, we're being enticed by our own lust. And that draws us into sin. So when the prayer says, lead us not into trials, you can kind of say this, Lord, don't ever lead us into a trial which will present to us such a temptation that we will not be able to resist it. That's really the essence of what he's praying there. Don't ever lead us into something that we can't handle, Lord. Don't give us a trial that's going to be this irresistible, become this irresistible temptation, but rather deliver us from any trial that would bring evil on us as a natural consequence. We don't want any part of that because we don't want to sin against you. And... Remember, this is just a claim of a promise. That's what this is. The term implies testing here. It implies a process that we're going through in our life. Anytime you see this this word in the original for temptation, it has a certain ending, A-S-M-O-S, in the Greek language, basically transliteration of the Greek. And and, and that connotates that this isn't just a one-time deal. This is a process. This is something that's going on in your life. So really, it's, it's a prayer of don't put me into any process, any procedure, any set of circumstances, any situation that's going to draw me into irresistible sin. Protect me from that. Now, James assumes... And I think it has to be assumed here that God is not going to do this. A holy, sinless, absolutely righteous God would not incite us to do evil. He's not going to allure us into sin. He's not going to tempt us into sin. But sometimes he will bring things into our lives that are tests for us. And when those tests come into the life into our life when we walk past a a certain magazine stand or go to see a certain movie, whatever it might be, that's a test. And are you going to pass the test or are you going to fail the test? 
It can be a test to show your spiritual strength and cause you to grow. Or you can fail the test and therefore it becomes a temptation and therefore it entices your heart to sin through your own lust and through the the drawing of Satan himself. I mean, say you're fired from your job on Monday. That's a test. How are you going to handle it? You know, are you, are you going to understand that somehow God allowed this and God give me the wisdom to go find a better job or, or whatever? And on the top, maybe you're, you're positive and joyous about it and you're committing it to the Lord. Well, then you've passed the test. But in the midst of it, Satan starts to whisper in your ear, you know what? The guy that took your place, that dirty, rotten guy that stabbed you in the back, and you start thinking all these thoughts. You know, he's ruining your reputation. You know, you need to go badmouth him. And, and pretty soon what happens? You fail the test. And you're falling into sin. That's how it works in life. Satan doesn't just kind of hands off because we're a Christian. I think he works overtime on us. I mean, it's kind of like in Matthew 4 where it says the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be what? To be tested. That's the word. For God, it was a test to prove his virtue. For Satan, it was a temptation. He turns it around to destroy his virtue. And that's how it works in life. There's two sides to that coin. That's why Job could say, When he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold, because he approached his trial in the right way. That's why James 1 says, Count it all joy when you enter into a trial, because trials have their perfect work. Peter says, in First uh, Peter, In this you rejoice, now for a little while you have to suffer various trials, so that the genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, may abound to praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, the trial is to prove the genuine gold of your faith. It's to prove that your faith is legitimate. It's a trial. God's purpose for that trial is good, but Satan always is there to try to turn it around and turn it into evil. Trials to test and prove your strength, exercise your spiritual muscles, make you more mature. Like God tested Abraham when he told him to go offer Isaac. Hebrews eleven seventeen says, God wanted to show what a virtuous man he was, strengthened his faith, but Satan wanted to turn it into a temptation. And what he's saying here is, God, lead us not, or allow us not to be led. Cause us not to be led. Don't permit us to be led into a trial which becomes an irresistible temptation that we can't handle. And this means simply that the Lord has to work out your whole life because there are certain things that we need to grow. We all do. And at certain points in time in our Christian walk, He's going to put certain trials strategically there in front of us. Sometimes we're going to fail the test. Sometimes we're going to pass the test. But they're all strategically placed by Him. You may deal with temptations today that when you're a new believer, if that temptation would have come to your way, it would have blown you out of the water. God knows that. Lead us not into temptation, testing, 
that's going to overwhelm us. In John 17, 15, Jesus said this, Father, I ask that you take them out of the world. I ask not that you take them out of the world, but that while they're in the world, you keep them from the evil one. So many times as Christians, man, we just want to pack our bags and go to heaven, right? Well, we have to realize that, you know what? It's within God's sovereign will that we're still here. And he has a purpose for us. He has a plan for us. He has that, maybe that one lost person that's out there that's only going to relate to you. And you have the privilege and the responsibility to go share the gospel of Christ with them and see them respond and see God change their life. Maybe after that happens, they don't take you home. I don't know. But don't ever think that, that God doesn't have a purpose for you being here in this sick world that we live in because he does. But he also prayed, don't let him fall into the power, into the hands of the evil one. See, how do you deal with that in the middle of a trial? When we begin to feel temptation coming, how do you, how do you deal with that? Whether it's in a relationship, whether it's in a church, whether it's at work, whatever. James 4, 7 gives us a simple word. He says there, submit yourselves therefore to what? To God. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. How do you do that? What do you mean submit to God? Well, it simply means to be under His Lordship. It means to get under His Lordship. It means that if you're going to submit to God and to His Lordship, it means that you're going to what? Do what He says. It means you're going to do what the Word tells us to do. It means you're going to submit to the basic biblical principles that you know. Submit to God. You know, when we, when we come to faith in Christ, we need to understand that God has a purpose for us in the kingdom of God. But that purpose can be short, short-changed by our own lack of obedience, our disobedience. And God has to kind of sit back and allow us to, you know, because we're not robots to go down this path. And he's saying, what are you doing? It's not, I don't want you over there. I don't want you doing that thing. You know that's wrong. And God convicts our hearts. And sometimes we, we respond to that. But you know what, beloved? If you continue to rebuff that and you continue to just say, I'm just going to go do this sin anyway. I don't care. I just can't help myself. Whatever it is, you're dishonoring God. And you're, you're going to lose your joy. You're going you're gonna to lose everything that's, that's good about your salvation in the way that we experience it on a daily basis. And you have to stop and you have to come back and you have to repent and say, God, I'm sorry. got off track. I want to submit to you again. I want to be connected to you again every day. The Bible says that his word is hidden in our hearts that we may not sin against him. The Bible says that his word is a sword that defends us against the attack of the evil one, Ephesians 6. His word is that branch in, in, in John 15. How are we going to be delivered by this in the midst of a trial by submitting to God? 
Confess your own inadequacy to deal with it. Confess your weakness of the flesh. Confess your absolute lack of human resource and come to God and say, God, I'm in this trial and I'm really scared because... You know, this is, I don't want this to turn into temptation and then a sin and everything. Help me deal with this in the right way, in the godly way. Maybe you need to get some help. Maybe you need to ask somebody else, a brother or sister, to hold you accountable, whatever it is. But don't think that you can do it on your own. Because you can't. So we cry with Christ, Father, spare me this trial. But if the trial fits your wisdom and the trial fits your way because you're sovereign and the trial fits your will and the trial fits your plan, then protect me through this trial so that I can come out the other side. And that's what Christ said. If it's necessary, let it be done. People often say, how do you get through a trial? How do you get through it? There's only one way to go through it. It's like a tunnel. You can't come out the other end until you go through the tunnel. Sometimes they're scary. Sometimes they're fearful. But that all is there because God wants us to be dependent on him and not ourselves. And God says in his word, word, you're never going to be tempted beyond what you're able. I'm always going to be faithful to provide a way out. Whether you choose it or not, that's up to you. You're not a robot. Very important that we understand that God allows these trials, but these trials can quickly turn into a temptation, and a temptation quickly turn into sin if we don't handle them at the very beginning in the right way. So, Lord, don't lead us down this road of trials and temptation and allow us to be tempted by Satan and and fall into sin. That's really what this is saying. And he always provides a way out. And then he closes there basically that verse with a doxology almost. He just says, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. In other words, God, it's all about you. I started this prayer, started this prayer with our Father in heaven. It's all about God. He ends the prayer, same place. It's all about you, God. It's about your kingdom, your will, your power, your glory forever. That's what he wants us to understand. God gets the first place, the rightful place, and everything else kind of just falls into its place. Let's close in a word of prayer and prepare our hearts for our communion time. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And, and Lord, we pray that um, as we've looked at this prayer over the last several weeks, Lord, that it would change us in our prayer lives, that it wouldn't just be words on a page, that we truly would recognize you as our Heavenly Father, that we truly could say that your name is hallowed in our lives, that your will is being done, that your kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, because we know in heaven everything happens exactly as you wish. Lord, we thank you that you do give us our daily bread. We thank you that you have forgiven us our sins. We thank you that you've given us the ability to forgive others when they've sinned against us. And Lord, as we learn today, we thank you that You will never lead us into temptation. That's just not within your character. But, Father, you do allow trials, tests in our lives. And, Lord, I pray that we would enter those tests and those trials in the power of the Holy Spirit so that we could pass them, so that we wouldn't fail you in sin because it's all about your kingdom and your power and your glory. Lord, we thank you. Father, we thank you for what you've done through Christ for us. Thank you for his willingness to die on a cross. And, Lord, how that has affected so many of us here in this room. Lord, maybe there's somebody here who's yet to taste the goodness of your salvation. And Father, we pray that you would open their hearts to your word. I pray that you would give them a heart of repentance toward you, a heart of humility, that they would come to the cross and leave their pride there. Lord, that you would cause them to cry out to you, be merciful to them, a sinner. Lord, we we pray that we ask that you would do that work in their heart. Father, we just uh, pray you'd lead us and guide us through our communion time together. And we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.